Welcome to Understanding Your Fertility, a podcast series specifically curated to answer all your questions about fertility with fertility specialist Aikup Bayrak, MD, and LAIVF. I am your host, Ara Behagen. Today, we are discussing failed IVF cycle, what to do next, and why did it happen? So for those who have gone through IVF treatments the experience can feel very overwhelming. It's certainly a big financial commitment, but also a huge investment of time, medications, and testing. And with all of that, an IVF cycle doesn't always result in pregnancy. In fact, some couples need to go through a series of cycles in order to achieve success. So Dr. Byrek, can you tell us what should be the first thing that couples ought to do when they have a failed IVF cycle? So the first thing that the couple should do is um, to schedule a follow-up appointment with their treating fertility specialist so um, that their previous cycle can be reviewed, their protocol can be reviewed, their medications, the response, Uh, Everything related to the embryology aspect of the treatment, Uh, for example, how many eggs did they get, were they mature, was there a problem with fertilization, did the embryos develop, were they tested genetically uh, for chromosomal problems, Mm -hmm. and eventually a failed IVF cycle can be defined as having absolutely no embryos at the end. That's a failed IVF cycle, Mm -hmm. meaning embryos just did not survive or develop. That's still a failed IVF cycle in a way. Or that cycle could have resulted in a transfer Mm -hmm. in a fresh or frozen cycle, and the outcome could have been negative or a miscarriage or biochemical pregnancy of some kind. So that's all Mm -hmm. failed IVF cycle, basically. Mm -hmm. So one has to look into uh, the details of that cycle, especially from the embryology perspective, and then try to improve the treatments or the approach for a subsequent cycle. Okay. So as to why an IVF cycle failed, then um, I'm imagining there could be a combination of reasons. Um, what can you tell us some of the common reasons why an IVF cycle might fail? Right. So there are a number of reasons because um, when it comes down to fertility treatment, there are a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of variables involved, and one has to really look at every single variable. So depending on why the couple needed IVF, one has to look at whether there were any additional tests that could have been done or could be done at that time when the cycle fails. So one has to take a look and see if there were any problems with the sperm. Mm -hmm. There are advanced Mm -hmm. tests today to look at the sperm quality, for example. So that's one thing that a fertility physician along with the couple can kind of look into. Mm -hmm. Were there things that could have affected the sperm? Lifestyle, exposures, anything that was overlooked or any medication exposure, for example, mm-hmm. any occupational hazards or exposure. So those are things that can affect sperm. And we certainly offer a sperm DNA testing in our own laboratories for such cases. And we have seen a number of patients 
who actually had somewhat normal semen analysis. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, everything was fine. But when we dig you know, deeper, we find that actually it's not okay. And there are you know, major sperm problems or exposures. So all of those can actually be treated or reversed. So the sperm DNA testing can give you information beyond just a regular semen analysis. That's correct, right. So a regular semen analysis can be normal or slightly abnormal. And especially in people who are exposed to excessive heat, oh. uh, people under excessive stress, those with poor diet, men over 45, especially over 50, 55, people on certain medications, people who have inflammatory diseases in their medical history, people who have uh, medical problems mm-hmm. can actually have sperm quality issues. Men who have varicoceles, which are dilated blood vessels in the scrotum, oh, can actually have abnormal sperm DNA mm-hmm. in the presence of a normal semen analysis, which can be confusing. But uh, so these are some of the things that we look at mm-hmm. when we see patients coming in for a second, third opinion who had you know multiple failed IVF cycles, for example, somewhere else. So, uh, so that's one component, compartment, variable involved okay. that one has to look at when um, we see failed IVF cycles. Uh-huh. Second one is obviously equality, which is typically one of the, the most important variables and determining factors of outcome. So majority of our practice, as you know, Arba is um, really couples and women who come in with low egg reserve or with prior failed IVF cycles. So when we look at the ultrasound or medical records or we examine and check reproductive hormone levels and oftentimes find out that there is an egg quality issue. And then there are certain protocols that we utilize to try to get better quality eggs Mm -hmm. uh, or more eggs to increase the statistical chances of getting a good quality egg Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day it also comes down to a numbers game in what we do right Mm -hmm. Um, so those are some of the things that we pay attention to Mm -hmm. and then we try to in a way cook the eggs (laughs) with a different kind of uh, method in a different kitchen with a different cook right (laughs) Right, right, so that's also uh, certainly one thing that we look at Uh and then Last not least, we also concentrate on anatomical variables or factors. I review a number of medical records and do a number of second, third opinions. Mm-hmm. And in some of those cases, we find out that you know maybe somebody had a block tube that really was not looked at, or mm-hmm. a patient may have had uh, developed polyps or fibroids over time or over the years or over the course of their IVF treatment or treatments. And every now and then the anatomy has to be assessed or reassessed Mm -hmm. or comprehensively evaluated to make sure that we're not missing certain things like block tubes or polyps or fibroids or issues with the uterine lining that can relate to implantation problems. And what kind of testing do you use to test like block tubes or lining of the uterus or... Polyps. Or polyps. Yeah, so the most basic test is really hysterosalpingogram, which is called the dye test in a way, or HSG in short. That is one of the most commonly tests that I use uh, because it does really give me a lot of information about the tubes. And I also like to look at the images myself, like a radiologist, because 
Sometimes when the tubes are open, they're just open basically, but, and the report may just say tubes are open and it's normal. But there are a lot of things that we look at on the images where, yes, certainly the tube may be open, but it may not be functional. Or it may be open just a tiny bit uh, where the dye spills, but that doesn't really necessarily mean that the tube is healthy or the anatomy is, you know, normal. And in some instances, there are birth effects of the uterus, such as excessive tissue that may be present in the uterus. There are anatomical variations. Um, there are issues such as heart-shaped uterus, developmental issues, or um, uterus that really did not form as it should have. And those are some of the things that we'll look at. I, mean, I had recently two patients with uh, a fairly rare anomaly called a T-shaped uterus, where the inside of the uterus is like letter T as opposed to what it should be, which is V, like a letter V. So these are all the things that we look at when we take on a case where it's failed with us or coming from another center so, and, um, and then assess and make sure that we are able to find the the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. And then there are also other things like immunological problems, mm -hmm. coexisting conditions like PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, other implantation issues that can be missed just by the basic testing. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we look at as kind of the kind of the second and third level mm -hmm. of evaluation. And then one last mm -hmm. thing is certainly the protocol, the treatment protocol. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the things that we look at too and change the medications, change the protocol and uh, try to get healthier eggs embryos uh, mm -hmm. that way. And um, do you ever have a situation where a patient doesn't go through PGT and might have a failed um, cycle and you go back to do PGT on some of the embryos? I mean, I know many patients are doing PGT at this point, um, so I don't know if there's... Right. So I think the question is if you have already created embryos right. and then you transferred one or two, mm -hmm. whatever applies to the situation, and then you have a negative outcome. And right. now the question is, do you go back and test those PGT, those embryos with the PGT test, which stands for pre-implantation uh, genetic testing? Oftentimes that is not done, although it can be done and we have done it in the past. Mm -hmm. So the challenge when you, is uh, when you have frozen embryos and you want to do PGT is that you have to thaw the embryos and then you have to biopsy and then you have to refreeze and then you have to rethaw at the time of transfer. So that's not ideal practice, although we've done it in the past and we have you know, good pregnancies, um, but that is not really a standard way of doing um, PGT testing. I think PGT does allow us to understand um, what the percentage uh, of the abnormal embryos uh, was in, in, a, in a case where maybe somebody has six or seven embryos, but they only have one good one. Mm -hmm. So that then explains why that person had all the failed IVF cycles, for example, because the embryos are just simply abnormal. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be helpful in that way. So ideally, the ideal time is to create it. When you do an IVF cycle, create create the embryos, and then of course do PGT at that time. It's it's recommended uh, to do PGT as well um, in certain circumstances, I would imagine. Right. So if somebody had failed IVF cycles mm -hmm. and then uh, they've never done PGT, mm -hmm. and now they're cycling again. 
I think it's certainly a helpful tool. PGT is not perfect. It's mm-hmm. far, far away from being perfect. So when you get a report, an embryo may be marked down as abnormal, but it can totally be normal. Mm-hmm. Or the other way around, it can be marked down as being normal, and it can actually be genetically abnormal. So the, there's a lot of overlap, unfortunately, with normal and abnormal embryos. Uh, so that's really not the ultimate answer, but certainly it's a helpful tool. And if somebody had multiple failed IVF cycles, certainly that is one additional, I think, test that can be helpful. The issue is when you do test and then you place an embryo back, uh, document it to be normal based on PGT, and then the cycle fails, then that's kind of a bigger confusion, bigger question, because you already done the testing, you already put the embryo back in that was supposedly normal, then, you know, how do you deal with that? Um, And that discussion is uh, rather complex in the sense that either the testing was incorrect, meaning that embryo was actually abnormal, but it was labeled as being normal, or it was truly normal in that embryo at 46 chromosomes, but still within the embryo, within the chromosome, there are thousands of genes, and that embryo can still have genetic issues, Mm -hmm. which is probably likely the cause anyway. So one has to kind of look into each case in more detail to better understand whether it's Mm -hmm really the embryo or if it's the environment or some other variable that results in the you know failed IVF cycle. Yeah. So what options do patients have to increase their odds for the second time around if um, they've had their first failed IVF cycle? Is there anything they can do besides beyond speaking with their with their fertility specialist? So, right. So all of the things uh, such as looking at the sperm variable, doing additional testing, uh, checking the anatomy, uh, checking for egg quality, egg reserve, checking for certain immunological conditions, coexisting issues, those all will be helpful. Checking to see and make sure that the embryo transfer was easy and smooth, the stimulation was using a good, sound, strong protocol, mm-hmm. making sure there were no issues in the laboratory, the embryos were developing, making sure that you know genetically they were tested. These are all the things that one can do and learn from and try to improve in a subsequent cycle. From the patient's perspective, uh, if there's a lifestyle that may interfere with the outcome, such as smoking, mm-hmm. uh, drinking heavily, uh, drug use, being underweight, being overweight, being obese, leading an extremely uh, stressful lifestyle, not sleeping well, taking certain supplements that are maybe overboard or not taking enough, having an unbalanced diet. All of these are variables that eventually can affect egg quality, sperm quality, uh, embryo quality, and eventually affect the environment where the embryo implants, which is the uterus. So all of these are also variables that one can take a look at Mm -hmm. and try to improve so their subsequent cycle results in a successful outcome. What do you think of acupuncture? Because we have many patients who also utilize that service. Acupuncture can be helpful. It's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one has to be open to it. One has to believe in it and believe that they're going to benefit from it. And I think it does allow managed stress. I think it does allow that mind and body connection. Uh, I think it does allow all of those. Um, Certainly, you know, if somebody has abnormal semen parameters or there's no sperm or some kind of blockage, 
I'm acupuncture is not going to treat that, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody has low egg reserve or uh, their tubes are blocked or they have endometriosis, acupuncture is not going to treat that. So acupuncture is limited in that sense, but certainly has a role in fertility treatments. There are a number of studies that looked at acupuncture in conjunction with IVF. Earlier studies, probably 15 years ago now, or in 2020, they showed uh, significant improvements uh, in outcome. Later studies did not show any benefits. There are a few studies that actually showed a negative outcome. So it really depends on which study you look at, which one you believe, or do you absorb all of that and then come up with your own interpretation. So I think our approach is that if a patient wants to do acupuncture, we're absolutely open to that. Understand that it may or may not be helpful to them. But if they are into that kind of an approach and if they believe they're going to benefit from it, I think it's really helpful. And what about, because I've heard this before as well, as far as um, having a few months rest after the failed IVF cycle, um, then taking a few months rest. Is there a recommended time frame? Does it depend, does it depend on everybody's circumstance? Um, it does. Or? Yeah. So the rest period, in a way, in between cycles is um, basically uh, related to whether we do egg retrievals or not. Mm. So we can do an egg retrieval this month and then we can do an embryo transfer next month. Mm. And then without waiting, we can do another embryo transfer in a subsequent cycle. So we can do back to back embryo transfers every month. Uh, but we can't do back-to-back igutchibles or ovarian stimulation every month. Mm-hmm. What's the ideal time in between igutchibles? Well, the bare minimum is a cycle, a month. If somebody had a very good um, response or they had a lot of eggs, um, then typically they would wait two cycles or two months. After the egg retrieval. After the igutchibles is completed. So that gives them adequate time to heal, and for the ovaries to get back to their normal size, reorganize themselves and so forth. But oftentimes patients we treat have low egg reserve, they have very few eggs. And when we stimulate them, their ovaries are really not that distended. So oftentimes a month of arrest is more than more than adequate. Plus, uh, most of our patients don't really have the luxury of waiting for a prolonged period of time because they may need to do two to three cycles just to get to one baby. So two to three cycles can be four to six months, especially if you're resting one cycle, doing IVF in another cycle, right? So in general, one or two cycles is considered adequate enough, but for transfers, we don't have to wait. We can just do them back to back. Okay. This is super helpful. Thank you, uh, Dr. Byrak. Our time is up. Is there anything you think you want to add um, to this topic? Yeah, I think as a final thought, you know, when you have a failed IVF cycle, uh, it's important to go back and look and try to understand why that cycle failed, really. I mean, why did we have a negative outcome? Mm -hmm. Where was the issue? Was there only one issue or was there more than one issue? Is there anything that can be changed? Are there any additional tests that were not done? that now can be done. Mm-hmm. So I think my final thoughts would be, if you have a failed cycle, go back and review everything, see if there's anything that can be improved. And if you have multiple failed IVF cycles, then get another opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Talk to another fertility specialist to see 
if there is uh, something that person would recommend. Uh, is there a different way of doing things, different type of testing, uh, just a different approach, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think my final thoughts would be that, and that's typically what I would recommend patients uh, if they have one or multiple IVF cycles that actually failed. Great advice. Thank you, Dr. Byrak. I hope this has helped our listeners who have gone through or currently going through IVF treatment, help them through their concerns and questions they may have had. Our listeners can find out more about you, Dr. Byrak, and LAIVF by visiting the website at www.laivfclinic.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at LAIVF Clinic. And thank you for listening. Understanding Your Fertility is created by LAIVF. Please note that this podcast is intended for a broad understanding of the topics presented. It does not substitute for the medical advice or care of a physician-patient relationship. Podcast listeners should always consult with their healthcare provider regarding any medical condition that requires professional attention. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If the information on this podcast was useful for you, feel free to share it.